Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Are you going through menopause or perimenopause? It can be a struggle to find comfort in your body with night sweats, hot flashes, and so many other uncomfortable symptoms. Hormone Harmony is a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause created by Happy Mammoth. They are dedicated to making women's lives easier using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout women's lives. So hormone harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time. For a limited time, you can get 15% off on your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CHAT at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code CHAT for 15% off today. Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 324. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Today's episode is sponsored by Trauma Therapist Network. Trauma Therapist Network is a platform for finding a trauma therapist, learning about trauma, and understanding about how trauma shows up in our lives and what the healing process can look like. Go to www.traumatherapistnetwork.com to learn more. This week's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there... Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan. Today, I'm going to talk about a topic that's something I think affects many of us, whether you're a therapist or not. It's almost like embedded in our culture, financial anxiety. My guest today is Lindsay Brian Podvin, who is a clinical social worker and consultant coach offering workshops and trainings. And she has a book that came out fairly recently called The Financial Anxiety Solution, a step-by-step workbook to stop worrying about money, take control of your finances, and live a happier life. Lindsay has a podcast called Mind Money Balance, and she offers many great tips and resources on her website and her Instagram page, including a quiz where you can kind of figure out your money style, which is at www.mindmoneybalance.com slash quiz. I'll link to that in the show notes. I really appreciate the easy way that Lindsay speaks about a topic that's weirdly taboo because in our materialistic, capitalistic 
United States culture. We're obsessed with money, but we don't like to talk about it. <laughs> we have a lot of things like that. It's like sex. We think about it all the time, but it's totally taboo to speak about it. So I hope you will enjoy my conversation with Lindsay Brian Podvin, demystifying our financial anxiety and providing a path to understanding our own relationship with money. Let's dive right in. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm so happy to be speaking with Lindsay Brian Podvin who is the author of the Financial Anxiety Solution Workbook and a podcaster and a therapist and so many more things. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on to Therapy Chat today. I'm really happy to be here. And Laura, I have to tell you before we dive in that your voice has actually been in my head for many years because your podcast is one of the ones that I would listen to on my walk to and from the office, usually two, because I'd be like getting into clinical mode and then coming home, I'd usually listen to something light and silly, but it's nice to be here in this seat when I've heard your voice for so many years. Thank you. And I'll tell everyone who's listening how my own money shame is causing us to do really our second interview, even though I never (laughs) aired the first one, because like, I'm going to come out to our audience as someone who has a lot of money shame. And when we recorded our interview that was just before the pandemic started, Mm -hmm. once the pandemic hit and I hadn't released it yet, I was like, how do we think about money when this is happening? So I just like left it on the shelf and finally crawled back and said, Lindsay, please, will you come back? You were like, (laughs) huh? Yeah, sure. (laughs) So thanks again for that graciousness. And I just want like everyone who's listening to realize like I'm sitting right in here with all of us as we think about money and how much anxiety it can cause. So I'm really happy that you're sharing your wisdom with us today. And I know that there's going to be so much we can all learn from you. Mm, Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So let's just start off though, with you telling our audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Hmm. So I'm Lindsay, as you've now heard Laura say, I'm a biracial financial therapist located on the traditional land of the Potawatomi, Peoria, Fox, and Wyandotte peoples currently known as Michigan. I have been a social worker for just over a decade now, and I moved into a, a very traditional career path for so many social workers I had my internship at a community mental health, and then I moved into a nonprofit. I was doing refugee resettlement in my first job, particularly acculturation and acclimation to the U.S. to help get them get ready for their careers and all the case management that went along with that. And as rewarding as it was, was, I was grossly underpaid as so many of us social workers are. And I was feeling, talk about money shame, so much money shame because I come from a financially privileged background where I finished school without debt. And even though I didn't have debt heading into that first job, when you're making not enough money, it's still really hard to get ahead. And when I got that first paycheck, I can so viscerally, Laura, remember just thinking, oh, shoot, I'm I'm in trouble because it was less than what I made as a waitress. And all the shame of like, how could I have wasted this privilege? What's wrong with me? How am I going to survive? Do I have to pick up a second job? How are other people making it work? Just all of this shame and anxiety. And then, you know, compounded on that was, was the stress and vicarious trauma of doing the work that I was doing. And I was getting chronically sick. I developed insomnia and, you know, I was doing everything in my power to cut my spending. I was following all of the the personal finance advice and, and cutting all my spending that I could and clipping coupons and buying things on sale. And it helped a little bit, but I was still struggling. And when an opportunity came along for a higher paying social work job, I jumped at it. And when I got that first paycheck, it was almost immediate in that my body started to finally settle. My immune system started to rebound, my sleep started to improve. And that was the light bulb moment of, yes, spending less is great, but also earning more is very important. 
And I had shifted from doing case management work into more clinical work. And so in my clinical role, I was seeing so much money stuff come up. But as social workers, we're often trained to refer out. So somebody stressed about money, we're trained to say, oh, go call, you know, United Way, and they can help you out or call your energy provider and see if they can, you know, hit pause on your bill for a month or two. But we weren't talking about the psychological side of money. And I felt like that was such a tremendous missed opportunity. And so I just developed this really deep interest in how can I ethically work with people around money while staying in my lane, right? Not advising, not giving tax advice or selling insurance or anything like that. But how can I hold space for people around this emotional side of money that impacts all of us. And I found financial social work and then financial therapy and sought out additional training there so that I could ethically provide care for people truly of all walks of life. So I'll pause there. So that's kind of the long and short of how I ended up in financial therapy and how, you know, we, we all have a money story. Absolutely. And you know what you, you touched on a lot of points that were thought provoking for me there, but one is should have jotted them down. One is, um, <laughs> like the shame of privilege. Mm. And another piece that came to mind is like the, anyone can have a quote poverty mindset, Mm. but you know, I, I always bristle at the idea that anyone living in poverty is it's a mindset problem, you know, like they're not manifesting enough. I'm like, um, no, there Mm -hmm. are systems that are keeping people in poverty and preventing Mm -hmm. people from rising Mm -hmm. up from poverty. So I think I'm curious, like what you would like to share about both parts of that, but like, is how does the work with the impact of like financial deprivation, if that's what it is, Mm -hmm. um, fit into how you, how you were started working when you started doing that? (laughs) Yeah. Long, long, long question. That's okay. Let me see if I can try and break it, break it down into parts, because I think there were a few different questions there that I think are helpful. One is how do we deal with our own shame? If we have any sort of financial privilege, And then two is how do we work with clients when it isn't just a manifestation, work harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing, or those kind of the two questions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, and it's not just like visualize yourself living, swimming in hundred dollar bills. It's that's not the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start there. So that this is the idea in the personal finance space for anybody who has tried to educate themselves about personal finance it seems like in addition to having a budget, the the loudest voices in the room are saying what you're talking about, Laura, which is think happy thoughts and money will follow. And we all know that that's BS. Like we know as therapists, yes, it is powerful to have positive thinking and to practice positive psychology. But we also know that just telling people to put their chins up and smile doesn't mean that their lives will get better, you know? And, and I think that's where so many clients recently are really coming to me struggling because they're saying, I took a manifestation course, or I did some tapping on my money mindset, or I did some meditation on my money story. And I, now I feel even worse because here I am repeating these mantras about wealth and abundance and my bank account has it changed. And now I feel like it's my fault even more because not only am I I not where I wanted to be. Now I'm practicing all of these things and I feel even worse. And, and what we say, what I would say to them is like, sounds like you've, you're becoming a victim of spiritual bypassing, Mm -hmm. right? Which is what we see a lot of the time in religious trauma. We see this idea of like, well, if you prayed more, that wouldn't happen to you, things along those lines. And so that's happening a lot in the financial space. And even if it isn't that blunt, I often hear people who say things like, well, in the United States, everybody has the same opportunity to go get a job or to invest in the stock market or fill in the blank. And as social workers and and clinicians who are in the mental health field, we know that that's simply not true. So sometimes it really is providing validation and psychoeducation to our clients that they're, they're, we live in a system that is royally screwed up and has so many problems. And there are, there are multiple things we can do there. We can acknowledge that the system is broken and we can say, what are the things that I can do? It's a little bit of, of radical acceptance in a lot 
lot of ways of, yes, there are so many things stacked against us. If we are not born into a, a certain body or certain income class, right? Mm -hmm. And what are the things that I do have the, the autonomy over, or I would like to have the autonomy over. So I'll pause there, but does that kind of help answer that, that question about manifestation? Yeah, very much, very much. And like, I do think that there, you can visualize the way you want your life to be. I think Mm -hmm. there are a lot, but when you don't have your survival needs met, ding, 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 you're not in a position to be that, you know, self-actualization is at the top. You got to get the basic needs met first. Yes. Yes. And when it comes, I really appreciate that you just said that because when it comes to the basic needs, you know, food, shelter, sex, those, those kind of basic, basic safety, right? Money is kind of at the bottom of that pyramid. And a lot of us really cringe to think about it. Like, I don't want to think that money is there, but we live in a society where to have access to a lot of those things that provide psychological and physical safety, you do need money for, right? We just know that look at any study where they have, you know, poverty and mental health and look at the correlations. You can say they're correlations or causations all day. But we know, we know that being in chronic stress is not good for us. And when we lift people out of poverty, we had this really interesting experiment that happened during the pandemic, right? Where we had essentially a version of universal basic income. We had much more generous child tax credits. We had much more generous unemployment benefits. And what happened? Millions of people were literally lifted out of poverty, Mm -hmm. you know, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming years. But what we know when we look at our kind of cousins over in Europe who have more progressive democracies than us, but democracies nonetheless, they have found time and time and again, that having that social safety net from the government is a protective factor against mental health. There was a huge study that the WHO, the World Health Organization did after the 2008 recession. And they took a look at protective factors for mental health. And of course, community was one of the top ones, but another big one, the top two was community. So family, friends, loved ones that you can lean on when you're having a hard time, but also a financial social safety net from the government was the other protective factor. You know, so it makes perfect sense. I agree with you. And I mean, also the community, I, I don't know, I can't say where there's a study about this. There probably are, but I feel innately, intuitively that community can't, people can't connect with one another when they are competing for scarce resources. So Mm -hmm. even though in areas where there are high levels of poverty, there can be strong community fabric, Mm -hmm. it's stretched thin because there just aren't enough resources to go around. And that's, you know, it's kind of like what you see in our culture right now, how we have this, you know, such a huge us and them situation going on. And when you see threat all around, because Mm -hmm. you don't feel safe, you know, you don't look at other people and say, oh, you're going to be helping me feel better. It's like, you're the problem, you know? So Mm -hmm. I just feel like you're right. Like safety and security and money go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, it is at that bottom because you can't meet basic needs in the United States without money. Food still costs money. Yes, yes, it absolutely does. Mm -hmm. Shelter costs money. Mm -hmm. And even if we may have grown up in a background that did not have high levels of social class and socioeconomic status, becoming therapists or getting your master's degree gives you a level of privilege. It gives you access to a different system that, you know, lower, having less education prevents you from accessing a lot of times. So Mm -hmm. I think that's another thing in that shame part is that like, I'm guessing, and I feel like I've heard this from people. I, I, my finance, my childhood experience is not a financial deprivation, but by the time I went to school to become a social worker and when I went to grad school, I was living in a very low income situation because I I had gone back to school. I wasn't supported by my family financially. So I do have a mountain of debt, but then I have so much privilege in other ways. So it's that very confusing sometimes way that we can be like, why do I feel so weird about this? You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
So what I really want to get into is how the money anxiety that we have ties into like inner trauma and attachment wounds or (laughs) experiences. Um, I think that because that's that's the part that, you know, when you're saying, well, I just need to think differently about money. You're not saying, but when one is saying that to themselves, it's like there's a lot of emotional aspects that can stand in the way and we don't really know why. You know, it's hard to like parse that out. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So, so like good old fashioned anxiety <laughs> um, and just like good old fashioned childhood development, our brains are doing the bulk of their developing when they're small, when they're little, right? And what research has found is that by the time we're about seven or eight years old, so kind of around the same time, our brains can kind of imagine the concept of death. We can kind of conceptualize more difficult or tricky concepts. We also have an understanding of what money is, what it isn't, what we are allowed to do with it, what we aren't allowed to do with it, what we can talk about, what we can't talk about. So by the time we're about eight years old, we already have a a fairly well-formulated idea of what we think money is. And where do we get that idea? From a ton of different factors like anything else, but it's kind of this like concentric circle, which is first starting at the family or the household in which you were raised. So what did your parents or caregivers say about money? What was the tone when money was brought up? What were some of the subliminal messages you got or the very direct messages you got? And how did that shape what you think about money? And then kind of moving out, you can think, well, what what did money look like in the community? When I was in elementary school, did everybody have, you know, the same colored free and reduced lunch tickets? Or was everybody taking out cash and paying for hot lunch? Or did they have their parent deliver lunch to them? When we had field trips, did you have to pay extra for them? Or did the school, did you live in a tax area where the school just covered your things. And so these are subtle little things that we pick up on as kids. And then those rings go out further and further. So what else is in our community? If we have a spiritual practice or a church, was it normal to tie than to give money to your church or synagogue? Was it important for you to give money to charity? Or were you a family who was the recipient of some of those charitable acts? And what did that feel like? Were your parents ashamed of it? Or were they thankful for it? What did that look like? And then further out, What does it look like in terms of the laws and systems that are at play? What do we say as Americans? You know, you and I are coming here from the United States. What what do we say about money? What do we believe the rules are? All of that stuff is smushed onto us by the time we're about eight years old. And when we imagine an eight-year-old driving the decisions of a fully formed adult around money, it makes perfect sense why so much of it is pretty nonsensical, right? Why we do things like, I don't know why, but I save every single dollar I earn. I feel really guilty about spending money. I get anxious. I feel avoidant. I don't want to talk to my partner about it. I don't want to think about it. I just know that when I get money, I just want it to sit in my savings account or my checking account, right? And we can't figure it out. Really, I don't get it. I don't get it. But when we pull back all of these layers, let's take this hypothetical person and go back to what was going on when they were five, six, seven years old. Maybe this person grew up in an environment where money was tight. And they heard their parents or caregivers saying things like, we can't afford that. We can't go on this trip. Don't ask about that. You're going to stress your dad out, right? Getting those messages, money's stressful. It's, it makes things tense. It makes things heated. It makes things awkward. And maybe also you had a grandparent who on birthdays was giving you a $5 bill and saying, save that away. Put that in your piggy bank. Don't let mom and dad see it. All right, so we're getting all of these messages that money is stressful, it's tense, and you're getting kind of another signal that says, hide it, save it, put it away, right? And so when we soak all of that up, It makes sense why a person may be like, I'm just going to save my money. That's what feels safest for me. I can't articulate why, but I just know that it does. Yeah. Well, and that is 
And mm, I guess it's more complicated, but I would, I was going to say that that's like culturally sanctioned to save, but I think it's mm. more like we get a lot of messages that we should spend, 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 spend. I mean, do it. It's the patriotic thing. Spend, mm-hmm. buy, 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 mm-hmm. shop, 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 more, more, more. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have like all the greatest stuff, then you're less than. Mm-hmm. So there's that message, but then there's the other message, like kind of goes along with what you were saying in the beginning about budgeting and stuff. It's like the a good financial person say yes you know yes. like the ant and the grasshopper you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that little fable that we used to hear right yes <laughs> yes and so okay so to your point what are the messages that our society sends us in my opinion there's one way that we feel okay having money and it's the the american dream way the only way it's acceptable for you to have money is if you were born into poverty or working class and you worked really hard and got out of it and made a lot of money. That's the only acceptable narrative that we will say, good for you. You made it. You did it. You're living the dream. And we cheer that person on, but we don't cheer the person on who was born in middle class and dies in middle class. We don't cheer the person on who was born into poverty and doesn't get out of poverty. We don't cheer on the person who was maybe born in that you know, top 5% and move down the socioeconomic ladder. The only person we say good for you is that one very small narrative. It's the only one that we really like. And we certainly don't like that person's children (laughs) because they're born with a silver spoon. They're lazy. They don't get it. Right. So it's, it's this, these double bind messages that are coming at us all the time. We want everyone to start out at the bottom and work their way up, even though we know statistically speaking, that's very unlikely, but we want everyone to have that because it reinforces this idea that here in the U S if you work hard, you can make it. Yeah. But then you have like the whole celebrity, I would call it like extreme wealth, Mm. cultural message of aspiration, Mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, I have seven, you know, luxury cars that all cost $300,000 each. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, I display them all, which is like, that's cool. Actually, Mm -hmm. that is cool. But, you know, like the, like I said, taking a bath and hundred dollar bills, it's like, we both like kind of look up to that person and resent them and think that they don't deserve it and they don't Mm -hmm. appreciate it and they don't they won't be able to sustain it and they didn't really get it the right way. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. Kardashians, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. I love the, the, the Kardashian example because we hear so much about how these women don't have real jobs and all they do is, you know, there's a lot of body shaming. All they do is show off their bodies and this and that. And I'm like, a lot of misogyny around so that. much misogyny right. around those women. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, agree with them or not. They have, you know, done a lot to work hard and build some empires up. And do they spend their money in ways that I sometimes may roll my eyes at? Of course, but also like, maybe it's nice to have a representation every now and then of a woman who's ridiculously wealthy, (laughs) you know, like, why does it make us all so uncomfortable? We're not batting our eyes at, you know, the, the men who are incredibly wealthy and have multiple jets, but those women, man, they, they take a lot of heat. They really do. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's like we resent people who in some way we identify with that we would kind of both like to be like them and we judge them for having something that we want. I don't know. It's weird. See? Yeah, it's no, confusing. it's super weird. It's super weird. It's super confusing. And I, ca- I cannot or remember the statistic off the top of my head. Maybe I'll send it to you afterwards. But this idea of like, if I just had money, everything would be better. And there is definitely some truth to that. I'm not, I'm not discounting the power of having a stable income and a, and a cushion so that your nervous system can tolerate if you lose your job or something like that. But what we know, statistically speaking, is that lottery winners almost all spend it all. And we all tell ourselves, oh my gosh, if I won the lotto, I'd be so smart with it. I would donate a bunch to charity. I would put a bunch in investments. I might buy a house, but I would live a really normal life. Like a lot of us tell ourselves these things, but human behavior just does not work that way. And that money gets spent. Same thing with professional athletes. Oh, again, I'll have to find a statistic on this, but there is a woman who specifically works with professional football players and their career, the average length of a career for them is seven years long, but in those seven years, they're making as much money as most of us would hope to make in a lifetime, but like compounded into seven years. And again, they have incredibly high rates 
of bankruptcy, not because that money isn't enough, but because our human brains just are not really wired to tolerate that. Particularly if you're thinking, maybe you came from a household where the message was, if you have money, go spend it because I don't know when more is coming in. Go enjoy it. You can't take it to the grave with you, right? And if we don't have any role modeling or access to things like banks, investment accounts, financial advisors, tax advisors, where are we getting our advice around what to do with that money as well? So there's so many systemic issues at play in addition just to the psychology. Yeah. I don't know if this really is relevant to the emotional side of money, but I I feel like we have, it's like if I made a million dollars, then I need to make more than a million dollars the next year and the next year and the next year. Instead of saying, I made a million dollars. Wow. How how can I make that last me Mm. so that if I make a hundred thousand dollars next year, I still feel comfortable or whatever it is. Yes. You know, and I think about that sort of in the entrepreneurship world too. Totally. Oh, I love that you said that because I'm also seeing, as you just pointed out, in the online space, it is all about more, more, more. It's about, okay, you did six figures, double it this year, get to seven figures, outsource this, that. It's just like all of this noise. And I feel like we've swung so far in the other direction. Like I firmly believe that all therapists should be financially compensated for their work, should have access to and be able to afford if they're in private practice, good time off. They should be able to afford their own health care. They should not be exhausted and burnt out. They just shouldn't. We should be financially compensa- compensated for the mental health care providers that we are. Full stop bar now. I'm never going to tell people to, to slash their rates or to do less. And I'm also seeing that we've swung so far in this opposite direction that we're telling everybody they need 12 side hustles, they need five ebooks, they need 10 passive income products. And it's also like, well, what is enough? If you really have a healthy relationship with money and you are practicing, in my opinion, financial wellness, which is not just the financial literacy and financial plan, but is also your relationship to money, what you can do then is say, I know I need X dollars every year to have enough. And enough to me means this. It means I can take four weeks off, or it means I can contribute money to my nephew's college fund, or it means that I can take my parents on a cruise or whatever your financial goal is. But this idea that we have to be doing so much, it's like, shoot, we're already ringing ourselves out as therapists. You're going on year three of this pandemic. We're already running on fumes. And now you're telling me I have to, I have to write a book and create a course. Like, you know, I, I just, I think it's important for therapists to also hear that they can be, if they want to do those things and it excites them and it lights them up and it also provides another revenue stream. I'm all about it. And I think having a private practice is a hundred and 10% enough. I think there's no reason that you cannot have a sustainable financial life with a well-running private practice. So that's my soapbox on that. (laughs) Running a group private practice has been a challenging and rewarding experience. And one thing that has made it so much easier is Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. If you're coming from another EHR, like I did, Therapy Notes makes the transition incredibly easy, importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. My team has found Therapy Notes very easy to learn. It's intuitive. The customer support is second to none. And that's one of the things that has kept me a Therapy Notes customer for several years now. Anytime I've needed to contact Therapy Notes for help with an issue I couldn't figure out on my own, I've been able to get through to someone and resolve the issue within 15 minutes, 99% of the time. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know. Try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just click on the link in the show notes or enter the promo code chat at therapynotes.com. Yeah, no, I mean, you're really tapping into something that feels resonant to me with myself and other therapists I've seen. It's like, and it kind of goes along with what you were saying, like we all start out working in some agency that for free as an Mm -hmm. intern, this is the conditioning, right? We start working somewhere else full time so we can afford to work for free or, you know, we're focusing full time on school and working for free. And then we get out of school and we're, of course, very eager and excited to get our first job and 
it's going to be a low paying job because it's, you're still learning and you're still in that like apprenticeship process of internship. And frankly, you know, the systems get more out of you, you know, they take more out of you and they pay you less because they can. Right. So then, you know, you just like, if you have had somebody modeling for you or you've been inspired, you're like thinking when I get out of this, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to have freedom and I'm going to have enough money and more than enough. And, you know, Mm -hmm. not necessarily seeking $10 million a year or 1 million or maybe not even a hundred thousand, but here it's hard. It's the cost of living is so high and Mm -hmm. I know inflation, everything's going up. So a hundred thousand it's for a family is, is hard for, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it used to be like, Oh, you could make six figures. Now it's like 200,000 would be very comfortable. (laughs) 100,000 is, Regardless, it's you start hustling and hustling and then you can't stop hustling. But then when the money comes, it's like you're so worn out and burned out that you feel like you can't deal with it or you don't want to pay attention to it or you're avoiding it because of those reasons that you mentioned before. It's like a hamster wheel, you know, exactly. so it's like the overworking and the over trying to earn more, mm-hmm. more, 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 more. Mm-hmm. When is yeah. it enough? Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I think that's exactly the question is when we have a healthy relationship with money and when we have the basics of our personal finance handled, then we know what enough is. And we could say, wow, you know, let's, let's pretend it's October. Wow. I hit my financial goals for the year cool. I can kind of take my foot off the gas for the last two months of the year and kind of cruise from now on, or, you know, the opposite of it. Oh my gosh, it's October and I'm, I'm behind. I need, I do need to kick it into high gear for these last couple of months, but knowing what you need instead of this arbitrary number, Oh, I need 20 clients. Why? Where did you come up with that number? If I saw 20 clients right now, they would not be getting good quality therapy. I can tell you that much. They just wouldn't like, Pre-pandemic, I could do 20 clients a week. Now, 12 max. That's mm-hmm. max. And I had to adjust my prices in accordance, right? I, you know, so so I think we have to know what our energy level is, what our capacity level is. We need to make sure that when we're providing therapeutic care for people, especially those listening to your podcast who specialize in trauma, that they are taking care of their financial well-being. They have to be because that money stuff will show up in the therapy room. If you're sliding your scale for every single person because you have so much compassion and empathy for your clients, but then you are on the edge of not being able to pay your rent or you're thinking, shoot, I may have to go and pick up groceries from the food bank in my community, we have a problem. We have a huge problem. And like you said, it's the conditioning of our field to just be grateful that we have jobs at all. And that the work should be, you know, I think we've all been told a version of that. I mean, I remember I negotiated my first raise. It didn't, I didn't get it, but I like did my homework and I negotiated. And, you know, this is when I had that chronic insomnia and my boss across from me said, you should be thankful you have a job like verbatim. They, I think they had a precursor of in this economy, you should be thankful you have a job. But at any rate, we get that message and our work should just be fulfilling enough that we can subsist off of air, which is not true. <laughs> like we, we just can't, we can be as compassionate and empathic of beings as we want, but being empathic and compassionate and kind is not going to pay our mortgage. It's just not. So, yeah, exactly. And that's one of those examples of where the internalized bias comes in with the, you know, the supervisor saying you should be happy. You have a job. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like the, you know, the classic nonprofit or agency trajectory is they come in just like us as intern, you know, hustle, 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 work harder, harder, harder. Finally, I can't do this clinical work so much anymore. I'm getting burned out. I got to move into supervision because there's no other path. path. And so Mm -hmm. I up to become the supervisor and then I disempower everyone below me that I supervise because I'm disempowered. I feel Mm -hmm. disempowered. I've been disempowered. So, you know, it's that like systemic way that it like (laughs) I'm using like my hand to show like it goes down from the higher levels down to the people who are just starting out or the new people there. A hundred percent. And it's so sad because in our field, we advocate as social workers to, to push back against these systems of oppression and in these systems that are unjust. And yet we still drink the Kool-Aid yeah. of having to work for almost nothing because it should be fulfilling enough in and of itself. 
So it's, it's really challenging when you're a therapist providing good therapeutic care and you also need to pay your bills and not just pay your bills, but like have more. Like that also makes a lot of people uncomfortable. We should have more than enough so that we can retire someday, so that we can take time off, so that we can contribute to charities and organizations financially that are so helpful. We all know when we work at nonprofits that yes, volunteers are great, but what we really need is cash. Right? Yeah. So when we can donate cash to causes that matter to us, that makes a difference. That really can help to move the needle. Yeah. And I just, I feel like too, like just to think about the background of social work where it has the right intentions, but the mm -hmm. implementation over the years has been very much like privileged women who had somebody else supporting them mm -hmm. financially were mm -hmm. advising, you know, oftentimes what single moms, yep. you know, people who are living in poverty. Oh, you know, you just need to work harder and you mm -hmm. need to try harder and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And you know, I think that even goes into that whole, not to knock the older generations, because not everyone does this, but the people who've been in the field the longest are the ones who are the most likely to say, no one goes into this to make money. Right. Or you, if you wanted to make money, you're in the wrong profession. It's right. like, what? Right, right. I'm getting I know, and I say, degree. I expect to be paid for it. Exactly. I, I say that all the time, Laura. I come from a large family and one of my sisters is a nurse practitioner, which when you think about the, the, just like the educational background and the clinical background, yes, of course, her work is different than mine in many ways. But in terms of four years of undergrad, two years of master's, sitting for boards, doing an externship, internship or practicum, maintaining a licensure, she's a mid-level healthcare provider. And nobody said those things to her when she was choosing to become a nurse practitioner. Nobody said, oh, you really should do something else if you want money. They said, oh my gosh, that is so smart of you. That's a great choice. Good for you. But when I chose social work, you can bet your butt that my family did not say those things to me. They did not say like, wow, what a great choice. You're going to be so happy that you made that choice. It's such a, you know, stable career. They said the things that you told me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so with the example you gave earlier, you talked about someone who's saving almost like compulsively and they don't yeah. know why. Yeah. What about the other side of it where we don't know our finances? Mm -hmm. And this is more like familiar for me. Like <laughs> I do now, but you know, there was a long time where I just avoided, I was like, I knew what was coming in and what was mm -hmm. going out, but I avoided parts that I didn't understand. Like, how do you do estimated yeah. taxes and how do you, you know, this whole like self-employment tax aspect and stuff like that. I just was like, oh, I don't know. I mean, how, where would I even begin? And then even to find a CPA, where would I even start? I mean, I don't know. How would I know? And well, I just got to do it myself and then avoid, avoid, avoid. And then what happens? Of course, it piles up and it becomes this mountain of avoidance. And then you're like terrified to even start because it feels like it's going to mm, yeah. swallow you up. Yes. <laughs> yes. Anyone relate to this besides me? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're in very good company. So by default, if I had it my way, my head would be in the sand all the time about money. Truly. I had to work really Thank hard <laughs> to, to talk about it and to face it. And now it feels very comfortable for me, but I can tell you 10 years ago, you know, when I was starting to do this work, I, I literally, cause this was like before podcasting was really big. Now you could just listen to a money podcast and you're walking. No one has to know. I remember being mortified because I would go to the library and check out books on personal finance. And I remember like cringing hoping that nobody saw me, hoping that like people wouldn't think I was dumb. Like, mind you, we know that this is not happening. Nobody's watching what somebody's checking out at the library. But I had so much anxiety and shame that here I was like, you know, this millennial woman and I should have had my stuff together. And here I am checking out books. I'm like, what is a budget? You know, <laughs> there's so much shame and so much embarrassment. And I think a part of it is the way that these systems were set up. Right. So let's just like back up and take a look historically what is going on that might be why these financial systems and jargon feel so out of touch for so many of us. Here in the United States, women did not have access to their own bank accounts or credit cards until the 60s and 70s. They needed their husband or father to sign a piece of paper so that they could open up their own bank accounts or credit cards. 
So this is, you know, not that long ago at all. So when we just think in terms of like who had access to it, think about that. When we think about how that impacted people of color, of course, they also didn't have access to banks, lines of credit, purchasing houses, building up generational wealth and equity. And then we take all of this fancy jargon and we slap it on top of basic arithmetic. I tell people all the time, I failed college algebra. I do not consider myself to be like a math whiz by any stretch. And the numbers you need to run and know to take care of your personal finances can all be basically done from an iPhone calculator. And if you still get stressed out by that, Google whatever you need calculator. Google you know, home budget calculator, Some something will come up. Google retirement calculator, something will pop up. One thing for me is thinking about, not necessarily CBT, but thinking about some of the things, some of the elements of cognitive behavioral therapy of just reframing and renaming, and even like a little bit of exposure to these things over time. So when I first checked out those books from the library, I kind of forced myself to read them. I didn't know two thirds of the terms in that book. But the next time I read a book, then those words at least were familiar for me. And then I would start watching, this is so silly, but I would watch like the Susie Orman show on CNBC because she was a social worker. And so I thought, oh, great. She's a little harsh for me now, but that was more exposure. So I'd be reading it. I'd be watching it. So I'd be exposing myself to these terms and these words. I would like literally follow along. I'd read a book. I'd pull up my bank account and kind of play along at home. And then I pretty quickly realized that like, it's a lot of jargon for pretty straightforward terms. 99% of the time people will like say to me, not necessarily with budgeting, but with like investing. They'll be like, oh my God, investing isn't for me. It's like too scary. It's too hard. And I'll be like, did you ever have a 403B when you were traditionally employed before you had a private practice or a 401k? Oh Yeah. So mm, there's probably a good chance you're invested then, <laughs> but it's all this language yeah, and jargon that we put on top of, of these terms and these words. So I would say for folks who have that anxiety, go slowly, step into that exposure kindly and compassionately, do it in a way that feels good for you. If you're a podcaster listener, as you might be, because you found me here on Laura's podcast, Listen to podcasts that expose you to money. If you're more of a reader, listen to books. If you like being taught, there are so many fabulous personal finance courses that are really affordable price points to help provide you with exposure. And then if you feel like you still need help after that, then of course you can seek out a financial planner or a financial advisor. But I think it's really, really empowering just to know the basics of what's going on in your financial life. You can always reach out to a professional in the future but I do think there's something really powerful about knowing what's going on in your money with your money so that when you do decide or if you do decide to work with a financial planner, you can say to them, hey, here's where here's what's going on in my money world. Here's where I want to be. I want a professional's eyes on this to tell me what else do I need to be thinking about so I can get from point A to point B. What can I be maximizing? What can I cut down on? What have I not thought through, right? Just like, you know, I think about going to get my car fixed. My partner is a car fanatic. And prior to being partnered with them, I would go to get my car fixed and they would tell me there was a million things wrong with it. And I'd be like, okay, fix it. And no, for sure, like in retrospect, that they put in a bunch of stuff that I didn't need. Now, even though I don't know everything about cars because I've been exposed to the language of cars, I've been around them long enough. I have enough wherewithal to say, you know what? Nope, just change my oil. I'm going to pause on those five other things you think that I need. And then I can just like make an informed decision about whether or not I need those things for my vehicle. Yeah, I'm hearing like the self solely, totally self-reliant road is not the way to go. But the finding, empowering oneself with knowledge to make informed decisions. And then when you've reached the limit of what you can do on your own and you're an empowered, informed consumer, you, you are prepared to go and seek the advice of a professional who can take you 
from where you were, where you want to get to, but it's with the, not just like this, you know, I picture like an animal laying down and exposing their belly, like here, yes, (laughs) you know, and then the financial planners like, Oh, score, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and they're somehow doing steering you towards something that makes them some huge commission or something. And then you're like, and I trust this person doesn't feel right. And you're still Mm -hmm. in the, you know, the blind sort of, I don't know, guide me instead of like, okay, I've empowered myself with knowledge. And now I will be able to detect if something doesn't sound or feel right for me and pause and go back and and think about it more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, What you're talking about is, is consent, right? That's what we talk about all the time in therapy and with trauma is you want your relationship with money to be consensual, whether you're the person managing it or whether somebody else is helping you with it. But you have to know what your boundaries are before you can say yes or no to something. And so I love how you just broke that down really clearly for folks to say that you don't have to do it all alone and you don't have to like close your eyes and hire it out. There is there is a space where you can learn and also ask for help at the same time. Yeah, it's like that going from like helplessness to, you know, either the over-reliance on yourself to helplessness, that spectrum. And in between, there's like what I know and then where I know that I've gone beyond what I know Mm. and I need to allow someone to support me, but I can find someone in, in a way that is, I guess I'll just use, keep using that word empowered because. Yeah, it's a great word. (laughs) (laughs) So what would be some ways that people could notice if they I mean, I think we've talked about a lot of it, but just like, what are some ways that someone could recognize that money, anxiety, financial anxiety is getting in their way? Mm, yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's it's really helpful to just spell it out. So most of us are well-versed with anxiety, with what it feels like, how it shows up, how it shows up in our thoughts and our bodies and our emotions. And so Financial anxiety is the same. When do you see your body start to respond with that anxiety response? When do you start to notice those thoughts in your head turn anxious? And oftentimes they're at these different financial touch points. So for some people, their financial anxiety really peaks. Right now we're recording this in the midst of tax season. Maybe right now my financial anxiety is really high because I have to give all these receipts and ledgers to my accountant and I'm feeling a lot of anxiety that I maybe made a mistake or I forgot to you know, categorize something the right way and it's stressing me out. And so we've got a lot of anxiety around that. Other people might feel financial anxiety when it's like social, going out to dinner. How do we split up the tab? What am I going to do? How much do I tip? It can, is it okay for me to say, I don't want a glass of wine because I don't want to spend it $12 on a glass of wine, right? Sometimes it manifests more in that social anxiety realm. And for a lot of folks with anxiety, as we know, it's, it's, it's future oriented. Will I be, so that's where I see a lot of savers with financial anxiety. Will I be able to retire? Will I be able to send my kids to college? Will I be able to pay off my mortgage or whatever? So I think about it kind of using the same language that we do with traditional anxiety. Anxiety is normal. It's a part of our lives. But if it's impacting your ability to get things done, it's probably time to address it. So with financial anxiety, it's okay if you feel a little bit nervous when you're filing taxes, so long as you actually are able to finish the task on time and you're not ruminating about it for weeks on end after you submit it to the IRS. If your anxiety is so bad that you miss the deadline for filing taxes, that you're avoiding the IRS's calls, that you're avoiding looking at what you're spending, right? That's a sign that it's probably time to address that financial anxiety. And and I think that we can do do that slowly and gently and also do it in a way that feels good because we all know what it can feel like to be on that other side of anxiety. I think for any of us who've experienced anxiety and we kind of look back we're like, gosh, I wish I could have extended a little bit more compassion to my younger anxious self, right? It's that same thing here of, yes, it feels uncomfortable now, but if I call up an accountant and I have them help me go through everything, even though it's going to be really uncomfortable for the few hours that we meet to know that I have a plan moving forward and that I can pay my taxes every quarter and I can file them annually, that's way less stressful in the long run than putting it off and being under this mountain of of shoebox receipts. Yeah. And that's, that's it. I think, you know, what I've been hearing you say is like, 
like titrating yes. what your nervous system can tolerate. <laughs> yes. yes. And being sure to pause and give compassion when mm -hmm. it's overwhelming because it's natural for certain aspects of it to feel overwhelming because I, I don't think culturally it's normal to have a healthy relationship with money. I think oh my culturally gosh. it's, it's kind of a taboo in a way. It's a to, total to taboo. Mm -hmm. It's a total taboo, Laura. And it's also like a really weird thing where we think everybody else knows what they're doing with money, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't like one of the most common things I hear in my practice is how does everybody else know what to do? It seems like everybody else got the memo and I didn't. And I have to tell everybody, I'm like, nobody knows, literally nobody knows. And the time I've been doing this work, I've had, I can literally think of a person who grew up in a household where they actively openly talked about money, A, <laughs> and this is my specialty. <laughs> and so I think that's the other thing too, is just acknowledging that we don't know what's going on with anybody else's personal financial situation. We don't know when our neighbor shows up in a new car, if they want it, we don't know if they bought it in cash. Stole we don't it. know if they're finance yeah, stole it, <laughs> financing it for seven years. We have no idea, but we make assumptions. They bought a new car. They must have X dollars that they, they could pay for it. Right. We, we just, but we they have no, they have yes. what I want and I mm -hmm. can't have it. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're better and I'm less. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, exactly. Like it, does. it just like goes right too. It's like, yeah. When you said like, how did everyone else figure it out? I immediately thought everyone else didn't, they got what they needed when they were growing up yep. and I didn't. So that, yes. so it's like, it goes right to that like wound of yes. you know, where you feel less than or whatever mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. of the things you've been through. And then the money stuff, especially because it's such a consumerist materialist culture that we live in, it really just like keeps bringing it home over mm -hmm. and over again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if people recognize themselves in what we're talking about, what can they do? I mean, you mentioned like there are some good podcasts and books on budgeting and what to Google, but mm -hmm. I guess basically I know you have a lot of resources. <laughs> let me just, let me just be a little more direct. What resources do you offer that can help people who are looking for more clarity and feel more in control about money? Well, I really, I appreciate the nudge. Um, so as, as Laura mentioned, I have a book, The Financial Anxiety Solution. It's a workbook. So it's a really great primer to understanding where your anxiety shows up in different ways to work through it. Of all the chapters in the book, only one of them really talks about money because that's kind of my philosophy is that it's mostly emotional and psychological and the numbers piece is, is the easiest part of the whole thing. So starting there, um, and if you want something even more accessible, I have a free quiz at mindmoneybalance.com slash quiz that will tell you a little bit more about your money archetypes. You can understand what your strengths are and what some of your challenges might be when you relate to money. I also have a free podcast, Mind Money Balance. Um, at the time of this recording, I'm trying to figure out which direction I'm taking it, but there's, there's plenty of good stuff there. And then I'm active on Instagram at Mind Money Balance as well. And if you're looking for a financial therapist, you can check out the Financial Therapy Association. They have a directory. Just the asterisk I include there is that anybody can be listed on that directory, like many directories. So sometimes you'll do a search for a financial therapist in your state and a bunch of names will show up. But then when you click on their profiles, you'll see that they're financial advisors. So just do your due diligence. Yeah. So, but, but right now well, that's, that's kind a great of, caveat. That's a very helpful <laughs> piece to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things where we have to educate ourselves as consumers, right? Just like we tell people, yeah, you can find a therapist on psychology today, or you can see that blue check mark, that blue check mark just means they paid the $20 a month to have their name listed. It doesn't mean that their credentials are verified in any meaningful way. So it's that same kind of a thing. It's like, Yes, start there and see if they're coming from a financial planning background or if they're coming from a therapist, social worker, psychologist background. That's very helpful. And also, don't we have some courses or something too? <laughs> They are cooking up. Yes, yes. So I have a few like standalone hour long workshops, but I have some courses in the works as we speak. Yeah, no so pressure. I've got, a, yeah, no pressure, but this is good. This is good. I, I work better this way. So I'm working on a values-based budgeting course for couples because that's one of the biggest things that comes into my practice is 
you know, they're a saver and I'm a spender, or we can't talk about money without fighting. And to me, the budget, I prefer to call it a spending plan, but at any rate, the budget is really kind of the first big conversation folks have about money. And once they have that, then it really acts as a nice foundation to talk about things like retirement and kids' education and paying down student loans and things like that. Wonderful. I can't wait till that comes out. I will definitely be digging into it. All right. <laughs> Lindsay, thank you so, so much for coming back, even though oh, this my is the pleasure. first time for the audience to hear um, <laughs> to therapy chat. Yeah, I'm so glad to talk to you. This is really interesting. Oh, such a treat to be here. Thank you, Laura. Thank you to Therapy Notes for sponsoring this week's episode. I do love Therapy Notes. It's such an asset to my business and makes my job as a practice owner and a therapist much easier. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.